0: Welcome to the Codkey Ride Home for Friday, October 30th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Why you're seeing more young black students working the polls this year. How the pandemic might parallel prohibitions effect on the American brewing industry. NASA followed up a viral tweet with a literal link to their SoundCloud. And it's definitely worth listening to, especially this weekend. And Play-Doh has just introduced a new line for adults. Yes, really. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. If you live in the United States, you may have seen a noticeable uptick this year in advertising to get people to sign up as poll workers for the election. And the reasoning behind this was simple. More than half, about 58 percent, according to a survey from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, of poll workers are over 61 years old, meaning that they're in the danger zone for COVID-19 and, according to CDC regulations, should limit how often they leave their homes for non-essential outings. So both in anticipation that many usual poll workers would be abstaining this year and in an effort to encourage that behavior, many local boards of elections and independent organizations put out an extra push for younger volunteers. And many young people took it upon themselves to get involved to help diversify the poll working field and not just in terms of age. Poll workers are also disproportionately white, and so young black students in particular decided to step in as poll workers this season as part of an effort to get more young people of color to the polls. Quoting NBC News, Through a network of campus fellows managed by regional supervisors, the Campus Vote Project has been working to recruit students to work at the polls on Election Day. It's also partnered with Power to the Polls, a national initiative to recruit more than 250,000 new poll workers to collect additional sign-ups from students online. The student recruitment effort, which has largely been concentrated in 10 battleground states, had attracted more than 10,000 sign-ups by October 23rd, end quote. A number of other organizations have been leading similar initiatives, including the Poll Workers Project, the Poll Hero Project, and the LeBron James-backed More Than a Vote. And in some places, it's really working. Philadelphia recently announced that they have more people interested in working the polls than they have available positions. Of course, sometimes the lack of available positions is because polling places have been shut down. Or, as a friend of mine who's been a poll worker for several years shared with me, the Board of Elections have not made available enough trainings to accommodate the number of workers in demand and which they truly may need. And it's those and other barriers to voting, particularly for disenfranchised communities, that initiatives like these are hoping to combat. They want to make sure that a shortage of workers is not one of the issues, and are also aware of the power of representation. As Shakira Jackson, a 19-year-old first-time poll worker and student at the University of Pittsburgh, told NBC News, being a poll worker sets an example for her peers. Quote, I'm hoping that this will give them the message that, hey, this is something that you can do too, she said. We need more youth here. End quote. End quote. When Prohibition began in the U.S. in 1920, there were 1,300 breweries in the United States. By the time it ended, 13 years later, less than a quarter of them remained. Many of them didn't make it back on their feet once the constitutional ban was lifted. A lot of them ended up being absorbed by the major manufacturers like Anheuser-Busch. It would take until 2016 before the number of breweries in this country returned to our 19th century heyday. Today, there are over 6,000 breweries in the United States, topping the previous 1873 record of 4,131. And that in itself is wild to think about, considering that in 1990, there were only 286. So I guess I kind of get why Anheuser-Busch has been so salty about the craft beer revolution when they basically dominated the market for most of the 20th century. But back to the point, prohibition had huge, lasting effects on the brewing industry in this country, and some think that the current pandemic will cause similar reverberations. Smithsonian curator and beer historian Teresa McCullough picked up on this as soon as lockdown orders started going into effect. She spent much of her career sorting through artifacts from Prohibition, and in March, immediately set to work collecting materials, oral histories, and other documentations of the present that could assist future historians. She's been on the hunt for limited-edition packaging like quarantine cans from Hackensack Brewing Company, menus mentioning things like curbside pickup, business records closed for lockdown signs, and alternative products being produced by bars— McCullough sees a lot of parallels between Prohibition and now. Just like every state and many towns have varying COVID regulations, so too did the states get to decide how exactly to repeal Prohibition, leaving us with many of the confusing liquor laws that vary state to state and county to county. Like how you can't buy alcohol on Sundays in some places, How some states sell all forms of alcohol in grocery stores, but others just sell beer and wine, or just beer, or nothing. Or how in Texas, you can legally drink at any age, so long as your parents are with you and gave you the drink. The pandemic probably won't cause such huge shifts and variances in how states do things, but we are already seeing some changes that could stick. Quoting Bart Watson, the chief economist for the Brewers Association, "...we're already seeing a shift in the short-term regulatory environment, with greater freedoms for breweries and off-premise operators for things like delivery and to-go. It has the potential to set in motion a wave of different legislative structures because of the need for direct market access for small producers." End quote. And here in New York City, for example, takeout cocktails have been a huge hit, and while they haven't changed the open container laws, I wouldn't be surprised to see some kind of permanent shift going forward. And in addition to changing regulations, a lot of breweries have had to pivot to other products in order to stay afloat, just like many did during Prohibition. Quoting Atlas Obscura, during Prohibition, breweries like Coors, Yingling, Anheuser-Busch, and the Pabst Brewing Company pivoted to make near-beer, soft drinks, infant formula, frozen eggs, ice cream, and ceramics. Many survived by leasing their spaces to other companies and industries, surviving on real estate holdings that small, independent brewers lacked. End quote. And now, many breweries and distilleries have been making hand sanitizer— Others have leaned into virtual events and selling merchandise, some are organizing hard to keep the industry and workers afloat, including raising funds for the United States Bartenders Guild, an effort that is truly needed. Quoting again, in April, a Brewers Association survey of small breweries found a combined 58% said they would have to permanently close if social distancing measures remained equally strict for anywhere from one week to three months. The same survey found that 66% of brewery employees had been laid off or furloughed. End quote. It is going to be tough for many to weather the storm. McCullough points out how the pandemic uniquely affects this particular industry because, quote, The means to protect ourselves from the virus is to withdraw, in terms of gathering in person. And the way craft beer has grown in the last couple of decades is to emphasize the importance of people gathering in taprooms. End quote. So how do small, independent, local breweries in particular recreate that feeling that has served them so well in recent years? It'll be a big challenge. But as they continue to innovate and pivot in fascinating ways, McCullough will be there to make sure that we can look back on this time in museums one day in the future. On Wednesday morning, NASA tweeted, quote, Psst, uh, did anyone hear that? End quote. And then they waited six hours as people speculated and freaked out before following up their tweet with a link to their SoundCloud. And unlike folks who get 3,000 retweets and then try to shoot their shot, NASA's SoundCloud link was intentional and super cool. It's a new Halloween-themed playlist featuring sounds from the depths of space called Sinister Sounds of the Solar System. It features moans and whistles from quakes on Mars, the auroras of Jupiter, blasts of energy in Cassiopeia, plasma waves, solar winds, and the ancient universe. NASA describes the sounds of the ancient universe as primordial sound waves captured by the Planck telescope and translated into frequencies we can actually hear. Quoting NASA, Before there were any stars or galaxies 13.8 billion years ago, our universe was just a ball of hot plasma, a mixture of electrons, protons, and light. Sound waves shook this infant universe, triggered by minute or quantum fluctuations happening just moments after the Big Bang that created our universe. As these sound waves propagated through the young universe, they left imprints on the matter and light, much like patterns made by waves on the surface of a pond into which a stone has been dropped. These patterns were imprinted as slightly brighter and darker patches in the light. By mapping this ancient light that has traveled to us through space and time, Planck can essentially see the sound echoes of the early universe. For this sound file, the patterns in the sky observed by Planck have been translated to audible frequencies. This sound mapping represents a 50 octave compression in going from the actual wavelengths of the primordial sound waves, around 450,000 light years, or around 47 octaves below the lowest note on a piano, to the wavelengths that we can hear. End quote. The whole playlist is worth a listen, and none of the tracks are that long, so it won't take you too long to listen to, but I do want to play you a clip from the track Juno, Musical Tones from Jupiter Waves' Parajove 4, which I think would really set the stage if you're looking for a soundtrack for your haunted house or virtual party this weekend. I really would like to see some kind of haunted house or like art display walkthrough featuring these tracks as part of their sound design. I mean, they really work for something like that. And if you want to listen to the rest of them, hit up that SoundCloud link in the show notes. As the descent into cooler weather and seasonal marketing began, stores like Bath & Body Works and Target packed their shelves with endless candle offerings of every scent you could possibly imagine. I found about five different types of waffle-scented candles in Bath & Body Works' fall lineup alone. And if you're into these kinds of seasonal or year-round but still hyper-specific scents, but you're not a candle person, I have good news for you. Play-Doh has just announced a line of their famous molding clay for adults. Even though the classic kids' Play-Doh all come in the same distinctive scent, only differing visually by color, the new adult line features scents like Spa Day, Lord of the Lawn, and Overpriced Latte. Quoting Adweek, Grill King offers up smoky, barbecue-scented Play-Doh while dad sneakers promises dad jokes in a can. Mom jeans, on the other hand, has a freshly washed denim scent, which parent company Hasbro says offers the feeling of jeans that are both comfy and flattering in Play-Doh form, end quote. The cans are packaged in black cardboard with a plastic scoop and sold in six packs for the same price as a kid's 12-pack, each scent is illustrated on the packaging in a kind of style that lets you know Play-Doh is in on the joke, but that this is actually a serious product and not just a gag gift. And it's not clear when the company first developed the idea, although Hasbro's VP of global brand strategy, Greg Lombardo, has long noted that people never really grow out of Play-Doh, and if any year we're the one to tap the market for creative self-care products for adults, 2020 is it. Without even having to look on Twitter, I know that this Play-Doh for grown-ups is going to be decried as another example of how millennials refuse to grow up, never mind the fact that it was probably conceived of by a boomer or a Gen Xer at least. But without letting that judgment ruin my fun, I've gotta say I'm kinda into this. I mean, between all the creative sense and the potential as a tool for stress relief, it really is just more like an interactive candle. One that won't burn down your house if left unattended. That is it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go design my own space-themed haunted house. I hope you have a great Halloween if you celebrate, and I will talk to you again on Monday.